This is, I guess, my fourth or fifth Sunday with you. I didn't count out, so we are becoming family together. Either that or I'm old hat. When's the new guy coming? Your uh, search committee is working hard at that, and we need to be in prayer together for that. I guess I do have one ace in the hole, though. Stephanie still has responsibilities at our home church. It was going to be four weeks, but it was COVID. She's training teachers. She does it in the winter and the summer, and they take over, but uh, the training just started last Sunday because there was COVID, and she had to teach for a couple Sundays. So um, when she comes and joins me, I'll have a whole new lease on life. Well, maybe we'll keep this guy around a little bit longer if Stephanie can be here with him. When I first came, I felt led. It was the Christmas season to talk about the bright hot, burning center of our faith, the Lord Himself, and it seemed right to me to stay in at least the beginning of what will be our short time together by listening to Jesus and looking at Jesus and learning about Jesus, letting this one who was born in Bethlehem lift us and love us and change us and transform us, and we have been doing that for four weeks. I did diverged to Paul for a couple of Sundays, but that was with the message of Jesus. But this Sunday, as Dan has shared with you, we start a series on the teaching of Jesus. Jesus was a master teacher, and one of his favorite stratagems for teaching was parables, stories. Parabole, the compound word, means literally to throw up alongside. So Jesus uh, took stories to throw up alongside some truth He wanted to illumine, like lenses or windows that we see through. And most regularly, what He wanted us to see is what He came preaching about, the kingdom of God. I've been teaching at Gateway Seminary forever, but I had a full-time pastorate for about seven years before my decades of teaching, and when I was sitting before the pulpit committee of that church, there was a retired classics professor from Vanderbilt, became a close friend and kind of an intimidating presence, and he looked at me, the young whippersnapper that I was. I was young at one time. And he said, uh, why did Jesus speak so much about the kingdom of God and the church so little? And indeed, if you look in your scriptures, I believe the phrase kingdom of God only occurs two times outside of the gospels and the lips of Jesus. And I'd never considered that question. At least I was wise enough, even at that young age, to say, I don't know. But I've thought about that question throughout my career, and this is what I think the answer is. The kingdom of God is the rule of God, the perfect reign of God, where life is exactly as it should be, living in harmony and conformity and peace with God's purposes for human life. And for the church, what Jesus came teaching and preaching about had come. It had been fulfilled. And it wasn't an abstract phrase any longer. It was a person. The church is preoccupied with the person of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we see the kingdom. We have the kingdom. We know the kingdom. The kingdom is in our midst. Hence the uh, phrase for this series of sermons, the kingdom in our midst. 
In an earlier sermon, I shared what I thought was the second most regularly mistranslated scripture in the Bible. Today, I want to bring up what I think is the most mistranslated. It is, the kingdom of God is within you. You've heard that. And it surely seems to sound like there's a spark of the divine in us. There's something good, and the Spirit of God comes along, and with a little puff of wind blows on it, and the ember becomes a flame, and we start with a spark. It's something in us. The text really says the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is before you. What Jesus is saying is something about himself. Yes, we are created in the image of God. Yes, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. All that is true, but we have also squandered that possession. We are dead and broken and lost, and there is no health in us. If we are to see the kingdom or know the kingdom or enter the kingdom, it is because it will come to us. We will encounter it. We will meet it, and we will be lifted. That's what Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is before you, God's perfect rule, His perfect way with us. Because we have made of the world, God gave us a broken mess, and because God's ways are not our ways, the kingdom of God, when we hear about it, shocks us. It's amazing. It's even frightening. Jesus told story, stories which were full of surprises. They packed punches. And perhaps there is no, certainly few stories that Jesus told that packed more surprises than this parable of the great banquet of the kingdom. In Matthew's gospel, it is a wedding feast. Uh, it's told twice. It's told in Luke's gospel, and it's told in Matthew's gospel. Jesus probably shared it more than once. But in Luke's gospel, it's put right into the middle of uh, Jesus' teaching. And he's kind of reordering who is going to be in the kingdom and not in the kingdom. Our anticipations are going to be shocked and surprised. Like that phrase many of you have heard, we're going to be surprised who is not in heaven and who is in heaven. This parable, as Luke particularly retells it, shares something of that. But in the version that we will look at together, and Mark's telling of it, he puts it, and I'm sure in the ministry of Jesus as well, it's being told right after Jesus' triumphal entry. As a matter of fact, if I prepared this sermon before this week, I would have probably put this sermon last, right before we jump into Easter, because that's where it goes in Matthew's telling. He has already overturned the tables and the tax collectors. He is, in a few short days, really a few short hours, going to be hanging in his death on the cross, so there's no wonder that in Matthew's telling of the gospel, the stakes are higher. The uh, emotions are edgier, and the colors darker. Turn with me. It's in the 22nd chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, and the first to the 14th verses. 
And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for a son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves. Tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted livestock, all are butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. They went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and rendered them and killed them. The king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is now ready. But those who were invited are not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those servants went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. When the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes, and he said, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. The first surprise, and we're going to look at five, that strikes us in this parable is the way Jesus pictures the kingdom. Go out on the streets of Redlands and ask somebody that isn't in church what they think of Christianity, and I wager that nine responses out of ten will have something to do with dour, dutiful drudgery. Certainly nothing that they want to be doing with their Sunday morning or any other morning or any other day. Christianity is dull. So what a surprise that the Lord of the universe pictures the kingdom of God as a party, a great banquet. It's greater than any Disneyland fireworks celebration or any celebration could be, that could be thought of to open the Olympic Games. It will be a party more festive and more joyous than any of us could even dream of throwing. Think for a moment of all the parties in Scripture. The marriage feast at Cana that Jesus turns water into wine, the feast of the prodigal son, the last supper itself, the meal with Jesus on the Emmaus Road where he appears to his disciples and the breaking of bread, the breakfast over cooked fish, when the resurrected Jesus returns to his disciples, the Passover in Exodus 12, and of course the final image of Scripture, the supper of the, of the Lamb. Scripture begins and ends with the marriage. There are really only 
two stories that can be told, tragedies and comedies. Oh, well, what about adventure stories and hero stories? Finally, they either end poorly or they end well. Tragedies or comedies. That is the great option. And given those options, the Bible is a comedy because comedies turn out well. And high comedies, we're kind of in a time of cultural insecurity. And I, I watch with great anticipation. It's difficult for writers to end even comedies this way today, but that's, that's a deficiency in our ability to tell stories now because great comedies, high comedies, always end in a marriage. It is a sign that the world has a future, that the world's going to turn out all right, and Scripture does that too. So Jesus paints the picture of the kingdom as a great feast and a great banquet and a great party. Um, Last night, Stephanie and I were, uh, I told you I was going to do it a week ago. We were at a, some of you won't even know this name. He's been singing for 66 years. Do the math on that. But a Johnny Mathis concert, Johnny Mathis sings romance songs. And it was a beautiful time. And it was tender and sweet and low, and slow dance music. But at the end of the whole evening, he, uh, the strobe lights came up and the Lights flashed around, and they caught our faces different than anything before. And uh, he ended the concert with, let the good times roll. And everybody was on their feet, those of us that could stand on our feet. And, <laughs> and it was a marvelous celebration, not just because it was uh, good music and we had a good evening, but because of everything that was summed up, our parents, our homes, the music that I heard in my youth, the concerts that I went to at that time, everything that summed up, almost everything good about my experience in life and its heritage was being summed up and it was experienced this great joyous celebration at the end. That's the kingdom of God. It's where everything as it is as it should be and as it will be. Second surprise we see in the parable is the astonishing response of the invited guests. Now, uh, there are two ways of reading those responses. One is that uh, they're kind of legitimate. Luke spells it out a little bit more. One person um, has to go and examine property he's about to buy, and another person has to examine his animals, and the other person's just been married. and. Um, those are pretty good reasons, and what host would respond negatively to those? But Matthew's gospel tells the same thing. He abbreviates it. If you put it against ancient Near Eastern customs, what they did is unbelievably rude. The invitations have gone out months before, and the party preparations have been laid and made, and the servants are just going out as a reminder. It's kind of like all the... The Zoom calls I have to do these days, I really love if a reminder comes in the night before or even the morning of, so I, I know where to get on that Zoom link. I don't have to search for it in my files. And that's what's going on. It's just a reminder. Save this date. And the preparations have all been made. And um, which person buys a piece of property that hasn't examined it or buys a car, in this case it was animals, that I bought a 
new car, new car to me, used car this summer, but I, I read reviews of it. I had done all, you know, I spent days, if not weeks, preparing for that. I didn't, I could have sent somebody uh, at arms removed to actually purchase the car. And weddings are pretty important things, but this wasn't the, the wedding day of the newlywed. They, the excuses were lame. Uh, I don't particularly like birthdays. I, I try not to celebrate mine. Uh, my father, when he turned 50, said, I'm going to start taking a year away each year, and that way I'll reach my second childhood at about the right time. But my wife loves birthdays. They're important to her. They're important to her family, and she's good at sending cars, and she's good at remembering mine, and uh, even though I don't want them remembered. And so this November and her birthday, I... I wanted to do something special for her, and we did, and we had family come in, and I put invitations out, and uh, one very important person on the day of called me up and said, you know, I've got some things to do. I'll, I'll meet you, happened to be Mission Inn, I'll meet you at Mission Inn for the dinner. And it came out all right. Stephanie didn't even really notice, and, and we had a good time at the dinner, but there was an hour and a half beforehand where we were having munchies at our house and just loving on Stephanie and presents being opened. And I sat there, I, I was miffed. I was really mad. And I didn't, I'm, Stephanie might not know that to this day. And I said, the dinner came and the person came and we had a, an, a good time and nobody knew anything, but I was miffed. Matthew puts the response, he, he, he doesn't give as much detail, but he says, uh, they paid no attention and went their own way. <laughs> I'm not saying that particularly about this person, but that's the storyline I put them into in my mind. Uh, one of my favorite definitions of sin, because it's so helpful, is everybody did what was right in their own eyes. People have their own agenda. Oh, this is important. Uh, you know, the kingdom's important. We'll be there. We'll, we'll actually, they're not going to be there. But we have an other agenda. We're important people. We uh, sort of like my cat. I'll do what I want to do when I want to do. Thank you very much. Uh, many of us, particularly in church, uh, are like that. Particularly in a church like this, where there are many successful people and accomplished people, and we've done a lot of good things. And our careers are hard won, and they, that's, that's nice. But unless they're offered back to Jesus, unless they're used to give Him praise and thanksgiving, if they're used as many of us do, as I do much of the time, as kind of a, a pathetic armor to keep me to myself, to keep me away, they are for naught. What the Master cares for is not so much our successes, but our, if not our failures, at least our honesty. Because he's telling us we have nothing else to give him but ourselves, our real selves. He comes to save people. He comes to save us. Not professionals, not accomplishments, not successful people. So, um, he saves us through the bed of our death through the blood of His cross, in the power of His Spirit, and the joy of His resurrection. But boy, then Matthew's gospel takes a dark turn. Not only are there some empty excuses that are given, 
But some are so hostile that they take the servants and they want to say persecute, what do they do? They, they abuse them, and finally they kill them. Uh, this is what my wife uh, would call a scene from a boy movie, an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. The tow missiles have been let loose and the mansions burned down and there are explosions everywhere. Uh, so there's some reaction that is some indifferent, and some actually hostile. In this country, we have not yet experienced great persecution. I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but I see it on the horizon. But whether that happens here or not, uh, thanks be to God for the country that we uh, have had and have. It is probably the norm in the majority of the Christian world, Christians for whom we should be praying and thinking and caring and Sending the gospel, I remember a gateway, at that time Golden Gate Seminary, I got to know a, a Chinese student. It was after the great initial persecution, there was a thaw, and, and now the persecution has come back. But her testimony was, I was a, a third-generation Christian in China. I'd been won to Christ through missionaries, quite possibly Southern Baptist missionaries. And I was a classical pianist, and I had quite a a name already as a young lady of 12 in my province, and the, the Chinese officials came to me and they said, uh, we will guarantee your education. We will guarantee you a career for the rest of your life as a concert pianist, and everything you dream about will be yours. It will happen as long as you renounce Christianity. That's the ticket. That's the entree. And she said, I didn't have, even have to think about it. As much as I loved music, as much as I loved piano, as much as I had worked for a career and ached for it, how could I deny my Savior? And I said, no. And that day, the piano was taken away from our home, and I didn't touch it again for 12 years. And that could be the end of the story. The, that's, that's the story that I want to tell. There is another part to it. She did come to this country. She was a student at that time. We had a music school, and she was returned, and her fingers were giving glory to Christ. But there is persecution in this world. The surprise of the response. There's a third surprise. And that surprise is the determined invitation of the king. The wedding feast is not filled because some people become bright enough or wise enough or courageous enough or intelligent enough or spiritual enough to respond. That's not in the story. The kingdom feast is filled because of the determined purposes of the king. His banquet table will be full. Call this the decree of the of God, call it election, call it predestination. That's another sermon for another time other than to give the end product. We come to Christ because He calls it, because He empowers it, because He equips it. The party is full because the King has determined it will be. The story of Scripture is about God. It is all about God, even God's kingdom. 
none of us on our own are wise enough or strong enough or spiritual enough to know to respond or to be able to be respond. We all stand in grace. We are covered by His riches. God saves sinners. God redeems ruined lives. Hear what is the subject of those sentences. When you hear that, when you see the love of God, I, I believe, I don't know if this is true, but it is my belief that if you actually see love and don't define it away, don't, don't refuse it, don't put up your barriers to it, if you see love directed towards you, you cannot say no to it. You cannot refuse it. You never will. If love is the indefatigable decision, on, I think, believe it is, to will the best for you, to feel it and to know it is to surrender to it. You have been loved by the living God as you can be and will be by no one else. When you see it, run to it, be driven to it. I think that's an amazing surprise of the text. The party is filled, not because some become wise enough, because the king has determined it will be and his purposes will not be thwarted. There is a fourth surprise. It comes out with those who do respond. In this parable, Jesus is saying that God works only with the lost and the dead. And God is going to be furious over both legitimate reasons and phony excuses because at the end, they leave us in the same place separated from the amazing embrace of the living God, out of His reach. So Jesus proceeds at this part of the parable straight through to the heart of the gospel itself. The people who know they need God's love, who ache for it and who turn to Him, are the ones who respond. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus teaches in Matthew 5. That in spirit is important. Yes, God does have a special place for the left out and the oppressed, but the kingdom is won by those who know that they are spiritually impoverished. Unless I can breathe in the Spirit of God, I am nothing and I have nothing. This parable says we are going to be dealt with not because of our deservings, but in spite of them. The shock of this parable is that God does not come to save the living, but only to save the dead. And without Christ, that's you. And then, the fifth surprise is the response of the uninvited guest. So there are three groups here. One is indifferent. One is actively hostile, and then there is a group that respond. But in that responding group, there is a strange category. The master returns to his full party, and there's someone is there, but he doesn't have a wedding garment on. What is, on earth uh, is that about? Uh, we bought a big house from our uh, Bay Area real estate prices, and we did it for Christian ministry. Um, I, have a, I have a pact with Stephanie, my wife, that I can't use her name from the pulpit without asking her first, and this is probably about the third time I've done it this morning. <laughs> I, actually, I can do it, but I have to 
buy her a dress from Nordstrom's if I do. <laughs> so this is the third time, and she's going to be here in a week or two, and this is just between us, right? <laughs> so uh, we bought this house for ministry, and it is fulfilled. We, we've gone through a pretty heavy stretch. I think I might have alluded to it last uh, Sunday, but about eight days, uh, we had... Uh, person moving into the house, person moving out. We had a party for the person moving out. We had our Bible study. I don't lead it, but we hosted it. We had a discipleship group, which I do lead in the house. And we counted up in the span of eight days. We had 150 people in the house and 15 people spending at least one night. And the washing machine was going all the time. And I mean, it was a privilege, particularly for me. Stuffy's a little bit tired. And, uh, but in each of the four guest bathroom, bathrooms, Years ago now, Stephanie, uh, a couple years ago, Stephanie has got a white robe and slippers, and she washes it each time, and those that stay with us fairly regularly often, I look forward to it. You know, I have my, my bathrobe just for me. And uh, so that's what you wear when you come to the Shouse House. In, in high weddings in the ancient world, they guests were supplied with a garment. It told them about their entrance. When I go to the hospital here, I... I get cleared for my status these days, and a color bracelet is put on, clipped off at the end. It says you have the right to be there. So the king comes back. He looks about this fellow, and he says, um, why are you here? And it's very, the detail, he, the response is silence, which is kind of an admission of guilt. He knows he shouldn't be there. He doesn't have a right to be there. None of us have a right to be there until we are clothed and covered by the righteousness of Christ. Uh, graduate students sometimes go and check out programs, see if professors are worthy of them. And uh, I was in that category, and so when I was looking at PhD programs, I went to uh, a, a school, the school I eventually went to, talked with the head of the PhD program. I, I never had a class with him. But I saw he was doing an undergraduate class, an MDiv class. I sort of thought I'd check out what he's about, what the school's about. It was a big class, not quite as big, but it was packed, probably over 100. Every seat was taken. I, I slipped in the back. I sat up against the wall. And the great man came in with an eagle eye, kind of looked around the room, and his first words to my horror were, are there any guests in this room? Well, I wasn't anybody's guest. I'd come in on my own, and I, I was in the back. I was already sitting on the floor, and I figured he couldn't have seen me, so I sort of scrouched down a little bit more. I mean, I wasn't lying. I wasn't a guest. So I scrouched down so I couldn't even see his eyes, and he said, well, let me put it this way. Is there anyone in this room that shouldn't be here? <laughs> So I knew I had been caught. I just feel sheepishly put my hand up and faced the consequences. Never took a class with him. That that to tell the that's the story. But to tell the end of the story, uh, that was the man that recommended me to the faculty years later. At, I never took a class with him, but uh, at uh, Golden Gate Seminary, after I finished that program, and was in the pastor for for seven years. An uninvited guest. We have no right, no matter what our accomplishments, the, what we are accomplished by is being covered 
with the righteousness of Christ. That's the great exchange. God sees, well, He doesn't see our sin. He sees His Son. He sees His righteousness. And all, all that we are broken with is poured on Him and covered with Him and nailed to a cross. He looks at us and has adopted us and put us in the family of God. Uh, let me tell you a secret about church history. Sometimes when people want to keep uh, back in the day, when they wanted to make sure a piece of literature was kept, they put somebody else's name on it. So we think this is a passage from a sermon uh, that was written by Hippolytus, which is not, you can tell by the name, that's Hippolytus. That isn't one of the, the big names of church history. So it was recorded, and in many of our manuscripts, as this being part of a sermon of he of the golden mouth, St. John Chrysostom. Now, you may never have heard of him either, but that is a much more important figure and something written by John Chrysostom would be preserved as this has been. But we believe this actually came from the pen of a Christian brother named Hippolytus. It's about the great feast of the kingdom and the banquet. I'm just going to give you the code of the conclusion, but Hippolytus, nay, John Chrysostom wrote, Are you God's friend and lover? Then rejoice in this glorious feast of feasts. Are you God's servant, knowing God's wishes? Then be glad with your master and share his rejoicing. Are you worn down with the labor of fasting? Then join all of you in our master's rejoicing, rich and poor. Sing and dance together. You that are hard on yourselves and you that are easy, celebrate this day. The meal is ready. Come and enjoy it. The calf is a fat one, and you will not go away hungry. There's hospitality for all and to spare. No more apologizing for your poverty. The kingdom belongs to us all. No more bewailing your failings. Forgiveness has come from the grave. No more fears of your dying. The death of our Savior has freed us from fear. Death played the master but he has mastered death. That is the invitation. We are flooded by love. We will never be loved again by a love that is this great. See it and then rejoice as in the parable of the prodigal son. The father says, come and join in your father's merriment. Celebrate and give song and praise. I said our praise team ended us in that sermon and song, right where this parable begins and where it ends. Remember where we are, were and go there again and where our praise takes us Sunday after Sunday to celebrate the amazing, unbelievable grace and love of God. See it, be driven to it, run to it, and let it bring you home. And know that home is a great feast of celebration and merriment. It's the party of the king. Living and holy God, you know the hearts of all who are gathered here, and I pray that for those who might be with us today who have been indifferent to the reality of the fact that Jesus Christ came into the world to die and to rise again to redeem sinners, Father, I pray that that indifference might fade away and in all of us and that we might be irresistibly drawn to you, drawn to Christ, driven there. 
I pray that we might be, in the words of this parable, chosen. For those, Lord, who are hostile, I pray that that hostility might be melted and broken as it was for the Apostle Paul. That they too might be chosen to be a part of the great celebration. We give you eternal thanks that all things have been made ready. May we respond to your invitation. And may we go to others and tell them that everything is done to create the joy and the happiness and gladness and singing and rapture of the kingdom of God, which in Jesus Christ is in our midst. Amen.